they started trying to reproduce these things to bring back the gods. Huh. So now, I thought when you said cargo cults that you were referring to something like people who love cargo pants and think you know they're what? like amazing. I, I think that's a cult too, <laughs> along with the cult of the du- dungarees. <laughs> the dungarees, yeah. Or the buddy lees. Yeah. <laughs> nice. But I was like thinking, what would it look like if like aliens came and we just... Wearing dis- cargo pants. Wearing cargo pants. Car- <laughs> yeah. Cargo pants aliens. Broadband internet service providers in real simple syndication are proud to bring you Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. That is Jordan. And that over there is Carlin. And today, Carlin, we are going to kick off Shocktoberfest. Yes. I have been waiting for this since you gave the green light to the idea. That was a few months ago, too. Yeah, it was. Um, we're finally in October. I'm so excited. I mean, and I, I know I said this on, a, on another episode, but I was so psyched because I had checked the calendar ahead of time and was like, there are five Thursdays in October instead of four. So, perfection. We get five horror films. So, this is the first one, and everyone will be able to stick around for the next four weeks after this and hear more reviews of horror films. So, hopefully that doesn't turn people off, but you should love horror films. Yeah. Everyone should. We hope that our discussion of horror films don't frighten you away. Ah, uh. ah, ah. <laughs> so, anyway, why don't you go ahead and tell us what your selection is this time around? Uh, my selection, this is my personal selection, is a 1987 film by the name of Hellraiser. Clive huh. Barker film. I don't think I've ever heard of that film. Man, I, have I mentioned it on the... I may have mentioned it on the podcast. No. Maybe once or twice, or I don't know. But, I don't know, maybe it's the picture of Pinhead looking at me that... Oh, yes, there. Well, I do, yes, full disclosure, I know we've talked about this before... But I ha- actually have a glossy signed of Pinhead from Hellraiser, um, signed by the guy who played him, Doug Bradley. And it says, To Carlin, see you in hell, Doug Bradley. It's awesome. But I also do have a glossy signed by Ashley Lawrence, who plays Kirsty Cotton in the Hellraiser films as well. So, And I will say, Jordan and I were talking off podcast. She has aged well, if you know what I mean. I think everybody knows what you mean. Yes. So, Hellraiser. Now, this is a... Would you call this a low-budget horror film? Um, I didn't pull the information on the budget or anything. I think it was I think it was a million dollars for the overall budget. Okay. I uh, would say that's that's low bu- lower budget, yes. Right. But, I mean, there are some horror films that only have, like, $500,000, so... That, yeah, that's true. That's true. It's, um... Yeah, so it's it's not a big flashy film, and I don't think it originally was set out to be, um, but I think they did a lot with a little, you know, and I was happy that this was a film that was actually directed by Clive Barker, and Clive Barker wrote the source material for Hellraiser, um, which the book is called The Hellbound Heart, and so... I want to read it. You said that you have it. I do have on it on my Kindle. on my Kindle, which is like sitting right here. I think yeah. I should like move it to the other side of the couch here, <laughs> so I don't start reading while we're recording. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I want to check that out because it, it's interesting. And there, you know, we'll talk about it as the podcast goes on. But there, as in mo- with most movies, there are differences between the novel and the actual film. Um, but Jordan, do we want to go over all our typical? Yeah, sure. Let's go ahead and, and read Netflix. the the uh, the Netflix summary. Yeah. Um, which I really feel like this this Netflix summary gives away too much of the film, personally. Yeah. But uh, if you're listening to this, then you should have watched the film or not care about spoilers because right. because of course our yeah. policy is everything is fair game. Yes. So, the Netflix summary. After losing his earthly form to demons from another dimension, an undead man asks his ex-mistress for human sacrifices to rebuild his body. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sounds very devilish. Yes. And like, as you said, that this was directed by Clive Barker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a British author and director, and he's done a lot of works. Uh, some of his other books outside of... His horror works. I think he's done a young adult city series that started with Aberat or Arabat. 
one one of the two. I'm not 100 percent sounds sure. sounds familiar. Yeah, uh, but some of the other movies that he's directed include uh, Lord of Illusions. I've seen that. Nightbreed. Yes, I have not seen that, but I want to. I hear it's very good. And then, um, it, this one sounds like it was two shorts that were combined into one film, like for, for video release. Clive Barker's Salome and the Forbidden. Okay. I haven't seen that one. wasn't really familiar with it. Yeah. Uh, I do know, though, that uh, a film that he had written the source material for that was then made by Ryuhai Kitamura, who was a really good Japanese director who did... Um, this cult film called Versus, mm-hmm. which is a movie you should definitely see. It's awesome. It's basically um, kung fu fighting zombies. Yes. In the woods. But there, there's not a whole lot of dialogue either. So people, if you have a problem with subtitles out there, you you can watch it without any problem because there's really not much dialogue, just a whole lot of fighting. It's a good film. But anyway, the that one that he wrote the source material for is called Midnight Meat Train. And I saw that film pretty good, actually. So I would recommend that as well. Okay. But, you know, overall, Clive Barker, at least for people in the, you know, into the horror genre, everybody in, who's, like, really legitimately into the horror genre knows who Clive Barker is. He's fairly legit. He's very influential when yeah. it comes to, to horror. And, I mean, you say horror to your common person, and they're going to say, you know, Stephen King. But... For people who are into the genre, they would think of Clive Barker right there with Stephen King. Stephen King is one of my personal favorite authors. Um, I enjoy like the Dark Tower series and Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and but Clive Barker honestly isn't somebody who I've explored a lot. I've seen uh, like Lord of Illusions, but I haven't I haven't had a chance to read a lot of his other work. Yeah, you know, but um, but I do I do recognize that he's pretty big in the field, just like. You know, Poppy Z. Bright and a whole bunch of other horror authors, Joe Hill, they're really, really influential and everything like that. I believe that Joe Hill is actually Stephen King's son. He is. So that's kind of funny. But I, you know, I really respect the fact that he decided to change his name for writing because it's saying, I'm going to do this on my own. This yeah. is not going to be and, because of my father. And his his work is really good. Um, currently, I'm working my way through the graphic novel series Lock and Key. Oh, I've heard wonderful. Oh, things it's fantastic. About that. Um, I own the first four volumes in hardcover, um, and I have the other two volumes waiting for me at the comic book nice. store. So whenever you want to borrow that, I'll let you let you read that. One thing I did forget to mention about Clive Barker, uh, the film Candyman was based on some of his writing. Oh, so and that's I, and an, I didn't know that until recently. And that's one of your other favorite horror films. Actually, I've, I'm gonna be honest. I've never seen a Candyman film all the way through. Oh, really? Yeah, no. Huh. I must be mistaking it with something else then. Phantasm. That might be. I it. love the Phantasm movies. That might be it right there. But let's go ahead and talk about who stars in the movie. You already mentioned a couple other people. Yes. Um, now we do have Andrew Robinson playing Larry Cotton. And Larry Cotton is kind of the milksop brother of the Cottons. And uh, to be honest, he he was a character that I, I was not a real big fan of. Yeah, he he just kept getting stepped on. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I, I wrote down in my notes that he's a pansy. Well, yeah, you accurate. Know? Yeah. But, uh, but Andrew Robinson has not always had a career playing pansy characters. Oh, really? Did you know that he played the serial killer in the first Dirty Harry movie? No. Scorpio, yeah. But I've also never seen the Dirty Harrys. Yeah, okay. Jordan's pointing at me like, shame on you, that's one that you have to see. Dirty Harry is a quintessential film, especially if you're into, yeah. into Clint Eastwood. Uh, but also, he, he's done a lot of other horror movies. Uh, Robinson was also in The Puppet Masters. Oh, Puppet Master. Yeah. I oh, I have all of them on DVD. Those are not good movies, but a lot of fun. Yeah. And he was also in a film, uh, like a TV film, I think it is, called Homeland Security. But I haven't I haven't really heard too much about that one. No clue here on that one. Now, the really vicious brother, the undead SOB... Frank. ...was Frank Cotton, and he was played by Sean Chapman. He did a really good job, I thought. Uh, oh, okay, never mind. At times, did a really at, good job. At, at some, some of the times, he did a good job, but I felt like... The writing for his character was pretty, 
pretty stilted in a lot yeah, of places. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he's done a lot of works. Uh, another film that I think involves Clive Barker was Underworld. Like, Underworld, if I remember correctly, Underworld was a film that he had written material for and it had been directed, and he didn't like the outcome of it. Oh, really? Like, so, he, that's what inspired him to write and direct Hellraiser. So, um, so Sean Chapman was involved with that. He was also in The Fourth Protocol in another film called Joy Division. So he's, Is that about the band, Joy Division? It could be. I'm not 100% no, sure. No. Uh, and then uh, another character who we have here is Claire Higgins, who plays Julia Cotton. I love, actually, as an aside, I love how all of these characters are family members. Yeah. They're all related to each other, which I thought was pretty cool to see. That it's a family situation here. Well, family can be hell sometimes. Yeah. Oh, trust me. I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, but uh, Julia Claire Higgins um, has been in a whole bunch of different things. Um, she's been on the TV show Downton Abbey. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is a big shift from yeah from, from Hellraiser. Horror to a period piece drama. Yeah. She's also done children's movies. Yeah. Uh, she was in The Golden Compass, which, from what I understand, was not very good. But not, no faulting her. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it was a paycheck for her. Paycheck, there. paycheck. Yeah, it was also a paycheck for Daniel Craig, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then also uh, Cassandra's Dream was another film that she was in. And then uh, another person that you mentioned earlier was Ashley Lawrence. Mm -hmm. as Kirstie Cotton. Um, and she's been in uh, The Lurking Fear. Uh, Cupid, and A Murder of Crows, in addition to a bunch of the other Hellraiser films. Right, yeah. There there have been a lot. I think there's been like nine Hellraiser films or something like that. I thought there were 12. Maybe. I don't know. I lost count. I haven't watched all of them because I I started watching all of them and in order, and then it just it starts going down, like way down. And but, I was just like, yeah, maybe I should just quit. Uh, one of our coworkers, Justin... I was telling him that we were going to be doing the original Hellraiser. And he's like, Hellraiser is good. Second Hellraiser is eh. It's alright. What? He's like, it's alright. Third Hellraiser is alright. But then there's a huge drop in quality. Oh, yeah. yeah After yeah. Hellraiser 3, there's a huge drop in quality. Well, I will say, in my opinion, Hellra the first Hellraiser, the one we're talking about now, is a nice film. I like this film. It is a good film. The second one is even better, in my opinion. The second one is my favorite. Really? Yes. And then after that, I think the third and fourth are like, it's okay. And then after that, it's just like, blah. Just don't even bother. Just kind of like... Well, because they get into like a whole lot of like dream sequence crap. And I, I'm just like, you know what? Stop. Because you don't need to go there with, with the Hellraiser world. Right. Well, especially because you have trans-dimensional torture angels... You know, basically yes. going all over the place. Why do you need to have horrific dream sequences when, when Pinhead and the female and uh, what is it called, Nasher, Biter, um, Chatter, Chatter, yeah, um, and then Butterball, and then Butterball. These guys can just pop out and, and then the engineer as well. Engineer. So we'll talk more about that kind of structure later. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much all that I have for. For the actors, I'm sure you want to mention a few of the people who play the Cenobites. Just really just the, the one that's most well-known, which is Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead, which is a you know the most recognizable character from the film, obviously, because he has pins coming out of his friggin' head. Right. I mean, how are you going to miss that? Um, so Doug Bradley, he hasn't done a whole lot of other stuff. He's mainly just done horror things. And he did, let me think, he did eight, I believe... Of the Hellraiser films, I actually had met and talked to him, and I asked him kind of about the character of Pinhead, and he said that actually Pinhead was a character birthed from Clive Barker's dreams. Oh, really? Yeah, that that's how he created that character. He had dreamt of him. So when he was trying to play that character, he really spent a lot of time talking to Clive Barker about how, you know, how do you see the character and everything. So... A lot of how the character appears and how the character acts is Clive Barker's influence, but the actual speaking portion was all Doug Bradley. He 
came up with the speech pattern and, and the, you know, the depth of the voice and everything. And he played around with it a little bit, and then Clive Barker was just basically like, there you go, that right there is yeah. it. And, you know, it's it's something that people, especially people familiar with the film, really latch on to because he's like, open the box. You know, the the way he says it and how deep his voice is. and Yeah. The delivery is right on, so... Good job, Doug. And that that must be a hard character to play throughout the years, you know, because mm-hmm. you you've got to keep the same. Um, the original appearance of Pinhead in this film is someone who looks rather young, all things right. considered. So as he gets older, that means probably more makeups and prosthetics. Yes. So that can be an issue as well. So kudos for him for being able to play such um, a he- makeup intensive character for so long. Yeah. Um, I did want to go into a little bit of information on the fact that there's been a remake in the works. Really? Yeah, and there's been a remake in the works since 2007. So Seven years. <laughs> it's been seven years, but it's been a mess. And this is something that I've been following for some time because obviously being a fan of the original, right. um, I want to know, are they going to screw it up terribly? What's the deal here? Uh, but one of the other reasons I, I became aware that they were going to do this remake was there were a bunch of directors that I was interested in who are French horror film directors who came over to the U.S. and were offered jobs, and a few of them were offered Hellraiser. So they've been kind of like really going through potential directors quite yeah. a bit. Um, just so, so you know, just a little bit of information on it. So it was announced originally in 2007 they were going to do a remake of the original Hellraiser, and Pascal Laguier was pinned to be the per. Oh, that's, there you go. I actually, that was totally not on purpose. That was, that was not on purpose. But. You should have seen the look on his face when he realized what he said. Uh, okay. So, um, Pascal Laguier uh, was originally chosen to be you, the director. One could even say selected. Yes, selected even. Uh, and that was after the success of his French film Martyrs, which is a a film that I really like. I would recommend it to people, and maybe we'll do it on the show at some point, but it is very heavy material. It is very, very violent, very dark, very hard to handle. Just a warning. It's well done, though. Um, So Laguier was was tied to this remake, but then he was thrown off because producers wanted it to have a teen appeal. Yeah, yeah. right, (laughs) right, right. And the thing is, Laguier wanted to be serious about the horror aspects. He wanted to take it very seriously, but they're like, no, we want it to have teen appeal. We want it to be like a teen horror film. Now, have you to the producers? I'd be like, have you seen the original film? Yeah, (laughs) it's not teen material at all. And also, sorry, no. Also, you bring in Pascal Laguier. Did you see his film Martyrs? Not teen at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about the story material and what's there, um, I feel like a remake of the film that expanded on the story and extended the length of the time to give you more time to tell the story um, would actually improve the movie quite a bit. Um, And also maybe solve some pacing issues along with it because at some points the movie goes really quickly and then it slows down a lot. So... You know, uh, maybe another perspective, you know, going through, lengthening some things, shortening other scenes, shuffling things around, explaining a little bit more would not be a bad idea for what what you're doing with the actual film. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and also I don't understand why you need the teen appeal. I guess because they feel like... Horror uh, had become kind of like a teen genre. I guess. I mean... When I think back on uh, some of the mo- horror movies that I've seen in theaters, and these are by no means good movies. I went because I was bored more than anything. Like um, uh, the remake of the Thai horror movie with the girl on the, the show. No, no, not the eye. Um, it was, was starring Joshua Jackson. Yeah, I don't know. Um, oh, gosh. And then I saw the American remake of Wreck. Oh theater. yeah, the and quarantine is what it's called. Quarantine. I didn't see the original. I hear the original's good. Wreck was. I did see Wreck or um, 
quarantine. That was awful. It was. Someone recommended it to me and said it was good, and I watched it. And I was like, this is crap. Well, I mean, the thing is, you're sitting in a theater, and I should have learned, don't go to a horror movie on the the early evening Friday night showing. <laughs> you know, because that's just going to ruin it for right, you. Right, right. You know? Um, so a- after Laguier got kicked off, they then tied Alexander Bustillo and Julie... Julianne Maury, uh, to the project, and they had directed a French horror film called Inside, which I have not seen, but I hear is good and I want to see. Um, it's basically about a woman who's pregnant and being uh, being um, besieged by a woman who wants to cut the baby out of her womb, in essence. But it's supposed to be a good film, anyway. <laughs> uh, Jordan's kind of like cringing at, at what I'm saying. I have a, I have a thing about body horror. Specifically, like, you know, medical horror. That gets me. Yeah. But Bustillo and Maori had been very reluctant to try to be tied to it in the first place because they had a lot of respect for Clive Barker. Yeah. So they were kind of like, well, we don't really want to screw it up. So I don't know what played out there, but they ended up off the project. So then in 2010, we end up with Patrick Lussier, uh, who directed My Bloody Valentine remake. And Todd Farmer, who wrote such crappers as Jason X, uh, My Bloody Valentine Remake, and The Messengers. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, but they, when, when they were tied to it, they kind of wanted to do more of a focus on the world of and the function of the box itself in the film. Um, out of respect for Clive Barker's original story. They didn't want to totally remake what he did... They just wanted to kind of focus, same kind of storyline, but focus on something different, like focus more on the box and the world around the box, which I thought could be really cool. Uh, yeah, that actually has potential to make a pretty good story. Yeah, 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 definitely. But at the same, at the same time, if you watch the subsequent films after the first Hellraiser, you get more of the information about about the box, about the box and, and the world. What's it called? The box, the box of lament. Uh, the lament configuration. The lament configuration. Yeah. Um, so then, and we'll get more into the lament configuration and all that later. So then, they ended up not being tied to it somehow. Again, I don't know. And then in 2013, late 2013, so it's basically been a year now since it was announced. Um, Clive Barker posted on his Facebook page that he had reached a deal to write the remake, and. Uh, potentially direct it, and that Doug Bradley will return as Pinhead. Which sounds awesome, right? You know, you get the original writer involved and director, you get the original Pinhead involved, could be awesome. Um, the other thing that was very encouraging that I heard about it was that Clive Barker's pushing for C- no CGI, all practical effects, which I'm a big fan of the practical effects. CGI, there are places for it, and I've seen, excuse me, I've seen some extremely well done CGI before, but I've seen some horrible CGI. Reference our, you know, review of The Hunger Games. CGI in there was terrible, and they had a gigantic budget. Um, I think quick CGI is usually fine, Mm -hmm. um, but for long sequences, you know, like I've seen so many werewolf change sequences that are CGI done and they're terrible and none of them ever stack up to the way that the werewolf change was done in American Werewolf in London. So, you know. But anyway, so so that was kind of the genesis of this this remake and what's been going on with it. Obviously we haven't really heard much of anything about it. Right. So maybe since then it's just been canned altogether. I don't know. Well, it could be that he's just really taking his time and developing something that he thinks is going to be worthy of shooting or it could be like you said that you know it it finally got put out into the uh dustbin of of great ideas yeah that never happened i hope it gets done with him involved because i feel like he can make it better than the original yeah and i and i really believe that he would do that so hopefully add in some extra stuff not just rehash the exact same things but you know yeah, I mean, if he did it, if he did it the exact same way, then I I wouldn't see the point in in reshooting the movie at all. Right. You know, because there's got to be something that that brings a different element to the story. Like, what would it look like 
like the the character of Frank is is someone who is very much past the point of no return when it comes to hedonism. He's very much a hedonist character. And that's explored through a very 1980s style of hedonism. Whereas there's been a lot of changes in social culture, what's considered to be mores, what's considered to be acceptable. A lot of changes have been made in the past 30 years. Right. So what would someone who has reached the outer edges of hedonism look like compared to someone in the 80s? True. Uh, and I think, are you referring to the fact that the fact that he was into more, like, S&M type, yeah. type sexual activities kind of show the viewer, ooh, he's, he was a he's dark dirty, person, he was a yeah. bad person, not yeah. moral. Yeah. Um, things have come a long way, and the BDSM community is more, I, I, I don't want to say respected, because in main, mainstream society, I, I think they still are not, mm-hmm. but people don't think of it as much as, like, demonic, because I think they used to kind of view it that way, and just, like, screwed up, and these people are a step away from being serial killers type thing. Right. Which is the way that it probably was around 1987 when this film came out, so it was effective then to kind of make that right. but, tie-in. But using the same kind of iconography to show that someone is not a good person, right? nowadays it is going to... It's not going to feel accurate to the times. Agreed. Yeah. You know, and and that's the thing that I'm concerned about. Like, if they did the same story again, is like you're pulling these things from the story that that make it intrinsically a 1980s movie. So you need to do something different to update the feel of the movie, not just update the camera techniques and the special effects. Right. Um, that would come along with a big budget. But really, we talk about this all the time. But the story is what drives. A movie, and if the story is not good or not something innovative, then what's the point of even committing it to celluloid? Right, and in my opinion, this film story-wise kind of wets your whistle, you know, because it doesn't explain what's really going on. What is the box? Where did the box come from? What are these Cenobite characters that come out when the box is done? You know, they they drop some hints and they say a few kind of cryptic things about it. Yeah, but nothing's really delved into too much. But I think for the first installment, that's adequate because it hooks a person in and they're kind of like, I would like to know more about what's going on. Right. Well, I mean, I remember when I watched Hellraiser for the first time, I spent a ton of time on on Wikipedia trying to figure out what exactly was going on. Right. Um, And to me, this film is not about the exposition or the storytelling. It's more of an atmosphere film than it is a story film. Right. You know, because you want to have that that creepy that creepy aspect uh, accentuated in the film. Like we were watching it for a good forty five minutes, um, and and like the like the part where um, Larry's hand gets cut and the blood drips on the floor, and then the boards of the floor start jumping up and down, mm-hmm. uh, and like smoke starts creeping out of them and everything like that. I'm like, ooh, look. It kind of makes it look like a haunted house movie. Right. And my girlfriend was like, you mean it's not a haunted house movie? <laughs> and I'm like, not really, no. No. You know, so so it, it does a good job of creating the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, it does a good job of setting atmosphere. But it doesn't tell a lot of, a lot of story as much as you would expect in that 90-minute time frame. I totally agree with you on that. And I think that... It's very successful when it comes to the atmosphere aspect. Right. And it's also very successful in just throwing out something to pull you in, something that's interesting, because you don't know where things are going with it. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered at the end, but that, like I was saying, is good for, you know, I'll, I'll see another film. You know? And, you know, that's a very gutsy move that Clive Barker did, considering that this was a film that um, was fairly low budget and was something that he was directing. This was his first directing experience right so he was kind of kind of putting dollars to donuts by saying we're going to leave so much to the atmosphere and leave so little to to actually exploring the world in terms of story um because we can go on to a next one and the idea that you're going you've got enough of a uh, enough confidence in what you've got to even think of a franchise 
especially these days, seems pretty amazing. I agree with that. And I think that with this film, it's important for him to fully set up the atmosphere of just surrounding like the lament configuration and the Cenobites and everything like that because you get the you do get kind of the full context of what the feel is supposed to be for probably the entire story of the Hellbound Heart, which is what it's based on. So I think in yes, but I do think that it's also kind of is a strike against it that there isn't a whole lot of actual story that goes on in the film. So it's kind of tough. Um, I don't know. And for that reason, I'm kind of like on the fence because obviously I'm excited about this film. I really like this film. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I think it's like the most amazing film in the world. There are plenty of films that I really enjoy, but I can look at them and say there are flaws with it. Or there, there are films where I'm just like, that is a bad film. But I enjoy watching it. Well, there there is the concept of it's so bad it's good, right? You know, which which I mean, like films like Plan Nine from Outer Space is a great example of that. Uh, But tell me what you really enjoy about this film. Well, okay, first of all, like the atmosphere we talked about, the atmosphere is great. They did a lot of great directorial things as Mm -hmm. far as making sure that you feel what you're supposed to feel. And all of the practical effects, all of the visuals were so effectively done. It was creepy. It was disgusting. It was scary. Yeah. And they take their time where they need to as well. That's the other thing. They don't rush anything. There, I don't, if I'm, as long as I'm not remembering incorrectly, I don't think there were any cheap jump scares. There was one. Okay. There uh, you go. The, one. Uh, the, um, when, when um, Kirstie is in the in the room at the end, the junk room, and she's trying to hide from Frank, she opens a wardrobe to try and uh, to try and hide in it, and out falls a statue of Jesus. Uh, okay, there you go. You know, gotcha. and w- which is which I I kind of looked at my girlfriend as like remind you of Narnia at all? You know, <laughs> Jesus in a wardrobe. But anyway, um, it's just like. There's a lot that is good about the film. Like you said, uh, some of the really good effects that they had. Um, one of my favorite effects was I would like that blood that fell on the on the how it was sucked up by yeah the how it got sucked up by the floorboards. And I kind of wondered how they did that effect. It looked to me like what they probably did is they had um, rigged something up so they could shoot blood through the the um, nail holes. They in probably the boards, reversed it and they reversed the footage. Yeah. yeah. It, it was played backwards. I guarantee that's what they did, but it looks it looks perfect. Like yeah. It looks great for what it's supposed to, to get across. Amazing. The other thing, totally floored by this, the reconstruction of Frank's body. When he yeah. starts coming back, that is so long. Yeah, it's like that a good must, five minute scene. Right, that must have taken so much freaking time. And it was all stop motion, wasn't it? Yes. You know, it's like... And that's the thing. That reminds me of, like, American Werewolf in London, like we were talking about. Right. You know, with... It's a... That film was a long werewolf transformation sequence that was done practical effects, and they had to keep stopping it, starting it, stopping, starting for the filming. Uh, And they they took days just doing that, that sequence. But when you look at it on film, it was all worth it because it looks phenomenal. Yeah. Same thing with body... The body reconstruction... The body reconstruction of Frank in this film, uh, I was floored by it. And it had been a while since I'd seen this film, and I remember loving that part of the film. Yeah. But re-watching it after not having seen it for a while, I had, I, I was just like, I underestimated how amazing that, that section of the film is. Also, it's the, crazy. There's like this whole um, like part where he's like talking... When he's just like a, a like a barely formed skeleton, uh-huh. and the voice work and everything synced up to that looked yeah. really good. Yeah. Well, and the other thing for me is, I, I want to point out that if if the remake is done, that it is essential that they do practical effects because you want to match that type of scene mm-hmm. um, because it's so amazing from the original. And if you use CG in that situation, it's easy to slap it together. It's easy to slap it together, but the amount of detail is going to not be as much. Yeah. Not only that, but it's there's also a certain sheen 
about something real that you can tell is tangible yeah. on set, especially this day and age with HD. Right. Yeah. You know, CG CG has a harder time looking realistic because of HD technology. So. Well, and also one of the things that I was going to mis- mention about Frank in general is he spends most of the movie uh, in in this very elaborate makeup where he looks like uh, uh, basically a person without their skin. Right. You know, and he has like exposed muscles on his face and his arms and his chest and everything like that. Um, and you can tell that they keep on applying like water or something to it because the makeup glistens under the lights. And just like you were mentioning, if you had that in a CG setup, um, what would happen would be you'd have the light source and then they would mock up uh, the, the glow from the actual uh, computer uh, CGI, but it wouldn't look anything not, like this. It the wouldn't same. look right. And like when, uh, when Julia reaches out to to touch it, it would have kind of they would have had to figure out how it would react with a physical person, and right. it wouldn't probably go very. Probably what they would do is they would CG her hand into the. You know what I mean? Like, and then just kind of fake it. Yeah. Kind of like what they did with the Hulk, in the um, in the Avengers. Like, there's that one scene where the where um, Bruce Banner says, "I'm always angry," and he turns, and it's an immediate shift to the Hulk mm-hmm. with with very little transition. Apparently, at that point, they took a complete um, Mark Ruffalo is standing there, and then they replace him with a digital double, and then it's all digital once he tu- once he turns around. Hmm. That's a lot of work. I feel like it is. Well, not like practical effects aren't a lot of work. That's probably even more work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, another thing to point out is the practical effects are just crazy throughout. I mean, even just looking at the costuming, too. You know, the Cenobites look phenomenal. They look disgusting and scary, and it all looks realistic. Um, but on top of that, you know, in the very beginning of the film, which, by the way, the film wastes no time getting disgusting and dark. No. Like, it's just like right from the get-go. You know, when Frank is torn apart... He opens the box and he's torn apart by these hooks, these metal hooks. Yeah. And it's just like, it looks so nasty. Like, you see the hooks going into the skin and pulling it apart. It played so well. It, it went, it, it did really well. The only thing I could potentially say is sometimes the blood doesn't look very real. It looks a little splattery. Yeah. Um, a little, maybe a little thin. And the coloration looks a tad bit off. But that's, that's kind of nitpicky. That's real like a small thing. It's not it's not glaring where you're just like, "Oh god, that's orange blood." Do you take your uh the color of your blood very seriously? Yes, I do. You do. The yes, in horror films, you better believe it. You better believe it, son. Um one thing I wanted to talk about, you mentioned you mentioned how the Cenobites looked and everything. Can we talk a little bit about their their overall appearance and like how they were put together? Sure. Um did you want to say something? Well, about it? I know that um, that one of the things that that um, they were inspired by what Barker went to when he was designing it was he took scenes imagery from like punk. Uh, he also took images from the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and then he took like we mentioned the BDSM community. Right. He took images from that and he combined it all together, which was very interesting because there was a lot of. There was a lot of the, um, the religious motifs within the house in and of itself as well. Right. Like there were, um, there was like a little saint garden outside, and then there was a Mary in one of the windowsills, and then the Jesus in the cupboard. Well, there there is a lot of um, religious stuff in in the films. Mm-hmm. Um, in films, you know, after the first one, they they have. Like, some very intense, important scenes in a church where Pinhead's kind of portrayed as, like, being like Jesus. And, you know, there's a lot of that kind of influence in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, yeah, the punk aesthetic, that look, very present. You can easily tell that in the film. Um, and the S and M, you know, with, like, the the black leather and everything. I also read that they had some, like, they, they tried to combine... Like, the religious vestments, like we were talking about, with butcher's clothing. Mm-hmm. You know, because they, they're all wearing these long, flowing, black, rubbery-looking clothes that look like they would shed blood pretty easily. Yeah, which is 
perfect for their profession. <laughs> for what they do. I guess so, yeah. You don't really want blood messing up your outfit. You know what I mean? Well, I no, I mean, they, they seem like the kind of creatures who get down with with pretty much anything. Yeah, well, as long as it involves them being able to give pain and tempt the flesh. What exactly does that mean? Okay, well, do you want to go into the kind of mythology around... I think it's... I, yeah, we I, talk think, about that. I think we can go ahead and talk about that. So basically, the Cenobites, as Jordan kind of said a little bit in the beginning, are kind of um, extra-dimensional di- beings Yeah, that some people perceive as angels and some people perceive as demons, depending on who you are and what you're looking for. What's it say about Frank that he sees them as horrific creatures? That he... Well, at first he probably viewed them as... Before he met them, he was probably viewing them kind of as angels because he was on a path of um, of BDSM that was taking him very, very deep, and he was trying to get as deep as possible. Because if you remember in the film, he talks about how, or, or it's at least alluded to, that he, he went to find, like, the ultimate um, stimulation, kind of. Yeah. You know, like, kind of the ultimate sexual high. And this was this box was supposed to bring it. Well, I mean, I guess if that's kind of it. But the the Cenobites, what they derive all of their pleasure from extreme pain and from killing people, torturing people, and that's made abundantly clear with what they do. Yes. Um. So, in their world, which it is another world, because the box, the lament configuration, is in a way to open the doorway, mm-hmm. so people can pass between, people and Cenobites can pass between these two realms. But it's only for whoever opens, or, well, figures out the puzzle. It's a puzzle box. Yeah. Whoever figures it out is able to do that. Now, the way the box came about, well, let me talk more about the Cenobites first. The Cenobites are actually part of something called the Order of the Gash, and it, there's a religious structure to the Order of the Gash, which is probably why there are religious illusions in the films. Because it's its own type of religion, kind of, right. that, that they're following. Um, so their, their religious structure is, at the top, there's the engineer, which I'm not 100% sure, but I think that that crazy shrieking monster thing was probably the engineer. From what I understand, that was how the engineer was reconfigured in... in- the movie in the book he's just uh, a person who glows a glowing person got it so that's the engineer at the top and the engineer makes the choices of who becomes Cenobites because Cenobites were humans at one point uh, who are brought in through the box and I don't know how they're chosen but the engineer chooses who becomes a Cenobite and who just gets killed I would assume someone who who seems to enjoy the torture probably Yeah, yeah right whoever can embrace it Actually, that's a good point. It probably is whoever can deal with that extreme pain and can embrace it can become one of the Cenobites. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, They probably, I think they cover that in the second film. So everyone just watch the second film. It's been a long time for me for that one. I should watch that. Um, So then there's the Cenobites right under the engineer. Then under the Cenobites are the Guardian. Now the Guardian ties into the homeless man that yes. you see in the film. Yeah, and he this guy was this guy was weird throughout the entire movie because they did not explain him at all. No. You know. And so so you see this guy who's stalk, essentially stalking Kirsty through the town that they're living in and then um she's working in a pet store and this was one of the creepiest things in the whole movie. Even creepier than like the the buildings the walls opening up with transdimensional portals and everything. This guy comes into the store and he's just standing by this cage of bugs. Those crickets. Yeah, and um, she comes up to him and she's like, "Look, you've got to go. You're you're not supposed to be here." And he reaches into the cage and scoops up a handful of them and then just starts eating them. Yeah. And it was really disturbing. And at the end of the movie, he turns into a skeleton dragon and flies away. Yeah, I think you're supposed to look like a demon. Yeah. So, But the Guardians basically are 
kind of what they sound like, Guardians of the Box. Of the... Of the um, um, they they kind of shepherd the, the puzzle box to the people who are supposed to have it, and then when it's done with, they take it back. And then it'll go to someone else. So was the guy at the very beginning of the movie who gave it to Frank, was he a guardian? One of the guardians, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, so they take that, and they always give it to people who are morally decaying or morally decayed. That's who the, the puzzle box always finds its way to. And people are kind of chosen. So you ask kind of like, you say like, it seems like for no reason, Kersey's being kind of followed around. And it does seem that way in the film because there's not any context given. And that is a strike against the film. Um, but he, she's been chosen to get the box. Because she's a person of moral decay. You know, you know, because I, I, I mean, know. the the thing is that Kirstie throughout it, the entire movie seems like one of the most wholesome characters. Right, but it may have had to do just with her relation to Frank. That might be it. That that she's chosen to have it. So because he becomes interested in her anyway, yeah. and then that's when you start getting the guardian following her. Is kind of like maybe Frank's kind of chosen. She needs to have this. And then she eventually, she gets, she has the box and she solves it eventually. Yeah. And well, that that's another thing though, is that if Frank, if I were Frank, I wouldn't want anybody to find the box because Frank doesn't want the Cenobites to come back. Right. Right. He doesn't. So but she strikes, she's smart. She strikes a deal with them. She does. Although, but, do you really think they don't want to hold to it? I no, mean, they're, they're not going <laughs> to hold to that deal. They're just like, oh, new flesh for us to play with. We would like to torture you. Yeah. Sounds fun. That actually was a pretty morally ambiguous thing to do, to say, hey, look, I know where somebody is who you can torture. Yeah. Hey, you got this person down the street, really think they'd rather be tortured than me. Yeah. Can we make a deal? Can we make a deal? I mean, we don't even have to ask them. We'll just, we'll just make the trade and you can go on your way. Trust me. They're all about it. So one of the other things that I thought was interesting and cool and kind of creepy at the same time about the box is when it's given to the morally decayed individual it's stated at least in the book it's stated that the box was always theirs and i was just like that's just like a little detail that just makes it kind of creepier you know what i mean yeah just be like this was always yours it's like what do you you know and if you're the person getting it, it's like what do you mean by this was always mine and then I guess they kind of find out the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess you can say that actions have consequences. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what this movie has a certain certain amount of say about. Um, I will point out to the, um, s- the term Cenobite actually means a member of a communal religious order. So the order of the gash. I mean, it makes sense. Um, so it's kind of like a monastery. Yes. A monastery of pain. Yes. Basically. I mean, that's that's what the whole religion is based around. It's just, you know, causing pain and, and taking pleasure from pain and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it, it's interesting to see how they don't seem to think in terms of right or wrong. Just how can they serve the, to the devotion of their religious cause. Yeah. Now, the, the lament configuration itself is um, was constructed by... Um, Philip Lamarchand, who was a, um... Is this someone in the character, or Yes, character-wise, yes, in in the mythology. He was a toy maker and and song box maker, and there are two different versions of Lamarchand. In the film, Lamarchand is kind of a sympathetic character who's kind of unwittingly made to make the lament configuration. In the comics, which is where he was fleshed out um, by Clive Barker's writing, <laughs> like Frank, yeah, aha, uh-huh. yeah, you got it. He um, he is like a serial killer who makes boxes out of flesh and and uh, bone from his victims. So those are very different portrayals. So yeah, I don't know. Take take whichever one you want, but. Basically, it was a puzzle box made by a master toy and, and puzzle maker and, and song box maker. And in the books, basically, 
you know, you see in the film, like, as you're solving the the uh, steps of the puzzle, it changes shapes. Yeah. In the books, it it disassembles and reassembles itself in a different shape. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of different, but then it also starts playing music while you're doing it, and it makes the music kind of more complex as you get further. So it is still a song box right. in the writing, but that aspect is taken out of the film. Which, well, I, I the thing is, I think that if you had... The way that the box like had different portions of it slide around and everything, to have something that was making music inside of that would have been a little too difficult to explain in a visuals perspective. Yeah. You know, and it also could be lost in the score because you just think it's some kind of musical motif. Yeah. One thing I will say regarding the box that I hated in the film uh-huh. are the graphics that they did whenever you get like one of the steps of the puzzle figured out. It was like these these like little energy balls flying off. Oh, you of mean it. like the the animated lightning? Yes, and I thought those looked re- they didn't play well. They looked really stupid, and I actually when I wrote them down, I referred to them as phantom sperms because because. <laughs> That's what they looked like. I wish we gave our episodes different titles beside the name of the movie. because This would be the Phantom Sperms. Welcome to the Phantom Sperms. I mean, but that's what it looked like. It, well, okay, now that you say it, yes. Everyone go back and watch and look at the Phantom oh Sperms. Because, and yes, I'm saying it plural. I know you don't have to say, put the S on there, but I think it's funnier if you say sperms. Oh. So, anyway. Oh, that made me laugh. Yeah, I just, I, I... It didn't play well. And I know it was kind of like a sign of the times type mm. thing. Like, that was probably fine back then, but... Well, they, they a lot of times, like, they would use rotoscoping and, and animated light effects like that in movies. I, I mean, I can think of, like, uh, the Force Lightning in Star Wars is just mm. an example from a movie that's about five years older with Return of the Jedi. Um, they have the lightning come out of the Emperor's hands. And it's the same kind of effect. It's just how you, how you use it that... That makes it either kind of, uh, kind of weird or or more impressive. I tie in horror films all the time, and you never cease to be able to Work pull in, Star, in Wars. Star Wars. I think like every one that we've done, you say something about Star Wars, pretty much. Well, I mean, it's a cultural touchstone that everybody can relate to. People can make that a drinking game. Go through and listen to all our episodes, and anytime Star Wars is mentioned. Or a horror film. Look, in Clerks, you, in Clerks, you brought it up, buddy. Well, it was in the film, so... Yes. You know, kind of had to be touched on. Anyway, back back to Phantom Sperms. <laughs> no, I don't want to talk about that anymore. Well, that the, but a, also, like, when, when Kirstie was reassembling the box, the same kind of thing happened to the Cenobites, but in, with a golden color right. rather than a um, blue color. And it, it was a little bit... That was a bit hokey as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, you know, a few issues with the film. Um, one of the, the big things with the BDSM in the film, Frank's character obviously is morally decaying because yes. that's who the box is supposed to go to. But the film kind of seems to make a point that it's a slippery slope when it comes to sexual fetishes, mm-hmm. and it's a fast slope. It, it's, it's not like a gradual decline that it's more like a water slide yeah. where you're just like wee drop straight down because it even goes so far as you know you, you see the photos that Julia finds of Frank with some women and it it's like just sex at first and then as she's flipping the photos it gets a little more um, control based on his part and then right. things are a little weirder and weirder and weirder and then there's this one scene with a one of the photos has the girl wearing like a weird tribal mask yeah exactly and then it, it it's illustrating the decline right and then everything culminates in the film with incest him yeah. being interested in incest he wants to get with his niece Kirsty. yeah and i just i mean it, it's weird to me because of that because it works within the context of the story i guess but at the same time it does paint kind of like the bdsm thing as being so horrible a bit of a taboo well and on top of that clive barker's involved in the bdsm community yeah i mean he actually you know when we were talking about what you know the cenobites what their looks derived from Mm -hmm. he said 
BDSM stuff, partially. Well, that was actually from S&M clubs that he had been to in New York and Amsterdam. Oh, really? And seen some outfits that people wore. Yeah, so... I mean, he drew inspiration from specific places. Yeah. Um, And I had read an article that kind of alluded to the fact that he is and has been involved in, in BDSM stuff, so... Yeah. So it was just weird to me that... That he would go to a place where it seems like it's being reflected negatively. Yeah, that he would paint it in such a negative way and, and just kind of be like, danger, danger to anyone watching the film. Yeah, but that could have been that could have been something that came from the producers higher up. You know, that might not necessarily have been a choice that he wanted to make, yeah. especially because he was a um, first-time director for this film. He didn't probably have as much artistic control as he would have liked. Um, I'm not saying one way or another whether or not that's the case, but I'm just trying to offer a scenario where, you know, he might have been trying to include something that spoke to him personally, but then they're like, oh, no, you can't use this because it's a taboo. In fact, you need to turn it on on its head and use it in this way to show how evil Frank is. I think it's easy enough to figure out that Frank is evil when he decides that he wants to seduce not only his... his, uh, niece but also his brother's wife his sister-in-law and not only does he seduce her he does it on top of her wedding dress <laughs> yeah which is again showing no how depraved he is no and and how well and also shows that julia is pretty close along right behind him not yeah. not as well, outwardly so but right and she she's in the second film so yeah. you you see her coming back but the Going back to the BDSM thing, you know, maybe it was totally intentional for for Clyde Barker to take that material and, and make it so horrific because it may have been a situation where he's like, society already views it as something that just makes your skin crawl, but why don't I then just exploit that and use it to my advantage for the storyline? Yeah. Because if it's something that you already know can really creep people out, mm-hmm. and in a very uncomfortable way, because, let's be honest, sexuality in general with our society is an uncomfortable thing. Right. You add violence to that, and some sort of sick, you know, quote, sick fetish, right? and then it's, it amplifies. Well, so maybe he was just like, this This could really work as th- a selling point. And there's also, like, the whole, the whole deal with um, the transgressive nature of it. Like, because you see people who are submitting to, to acts that seem outside of the norm, and you wonder if the, like, you know, it, it's not seen in a, a, a positive way. Like, the person who is, like, the dominatrix or the master in this situation is looked on as someone who is subjugating somebody else in a negative way. Right. You know, so, and, and it, it's totally not in a healthy BDSM relationship, it's something that's consensual. But it doesn't look that way as to anybody from the outside. Um, like, have you have you heard of, um, and this is an, um, a more, one that I've heard of recently, but the, 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 the pony community, like the people who, who, like one person will be the trainer and then the other person will be a pony. No, I, I'm they, not familiar, they, but I'm not surprised that it exists. Right. Well, they have like they have horse shows and pony shows, and they'll get wasn't aware they'll get like the cups, like um, oh. like trophies and everything for the best horse in show. And maybe that's another horror film idea right there. I, I don't know, but I mean, when you look at it, you look at the people who are in this kind of relationship, and you go, "How do you see this as any kind of normal?" Especially if you're a straight cisgendered person, right? You know, it's something that you just wouldn't look at in some uh, in a way that is um, within cultural cultural normalities. Right, I hear you. Well, anyway, uh, we talked a lot about this film and a lot about like the issues going into it and the mythology behind it. Uh, we're getting pretty close to the end. Do you yeah. want to go ahead and give your final assessment of the film? Yes. Um, okay. So overall. I obviously really, really love the practical effects in this film. I think those were extremely, extremely accomplished. I think the score actually fit pretty well with the film, uh, and for the time period, it worked out. Uh, the acting was good. Um, there were a few moments where it was a little hokey-ish, but 
not enough to like kill the film or anything like that. Um, we did point out a few issues with it. You know, there, there's maybe not enough of the original story incorporated into the film, so people kind of get lost with some of the things like the Guardian in there, you know, the Vagrant, um, not really knowing what his role is. Uh, but the atmosphere, like we talked about, was extremely well created. There were a lot of very tense moments. Uh, I thought the cinematography was well handled. Um, the story in general is just very alluring and made made me personally want to know more about the backstory, about the Cenobites and the Lament configuration, all that kind of stuff. I would recommend that people watch maybe, definitely the second film, maybe three and four, but probably not much after that, just to get more of the mythology behind it and just kind of see it unfold a little bit more. The second one is my favorite one by far, uh, so definitely see that one. Um, overall, obviously not a perfect film. I, I, I It's got a place in my heart. I really like the film, but I feel like I can only justify giving it three stars. Okay. Sorry, Clive. <laughs> well, I, I mean, when the new one comes out, I'm sure you, he'll look at you and he'll, he'll go, Carlin, do you have it in your heart to give this one four stars? Yeah. Or maybe four and a half. I think he'd say something like, "Open the box." Open the, <laughs> open the stars. Open the door to the theater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, just for my assessment of the movie, um, this like I was on the the edge where you were talking about some people feel confused by the mythology and everything like that. Yeah. Um, I really wish that for some of the movie it had slowed down and let the mythology be developed more rather than just you know telling us oh yeah these are creatures from another dimension who torture you they're called the cenobites right and i i i like deep rich storytelling and mythology building and stuff like that so that to me i wish had been something that was uh brought up a little bit more um i would have liked to see a little bit more developed relationship between kirsty and her and the her dad, Larry and, and Julia, mm -hmm. uh, because in the book, something I was reading in my research is that Kirstie is not his daughter, but is a, a friend of theirs, a, an adult friend of theirs who's actually romantically interested in Larry. Oh, that's, Ooh, that's totally different. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Wow. So I would have liked to see, like, if you're going to have like change that relationship so significantly, I would like to see like a little bit more development of it. Mm -hmm. And, Honestly, Kirsty originally comes off in the movie as um, the spoiled, quote-unquote, independent child. Yeah. You know, so so some more development of her character, I would have liked that. Um, I thought the effects were good. I especially liked, this, like, we were talking about the scene where the body was coming oh, together. And the, amazing. Um, and I, I liked how Julia was luring people back to the house to to spill spill the blood i like how she went from being really nervous about it to just being oh like not even covering up the hammer cold and calculated just like grabbing that and bashing in their skulls and leading up to their deaths were some really intense scenes yeah yeah they did a good job of building the tension for those but overall i mean i think i think it had some pacing issues um and i think i think the mythology could have been a little bit better developed even for a first film uh but kudos for to Barker for having the uh, the the moxie to assume that this was going to be a franchise rather than just a one-off film. Uh, so overall, I'm going to go ahead uh, slightly lower than yours and give it a two and a half stars. Two and a half. Okay. So I think I think overall both both of those are pretty fair ratings. Two and three quarter stars overall for the podcast. Um, that's not bad. No, you know it's more than half. It's a little bit more than halfway. So um, nice. I, and I'm glad we were able to do a film like this because, you know, I love the horror films. You do. Well, that's why October is Shocktober. Yes, it is. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much time. Carlin, thank you so much for all the insight. You really went the extra mile with all the insight on this one. I was excited to give all that extra information about, you know, the mythology around it. So if you were interested in the mythology of hellraiser but you didn't know where to go um you can always shoot us an email at most excellent movie night at gmail.com or leave us a comment on the episode 
Carlin will take any specialized questions that you have. Sure. And he will make sure that you understand the world of Hellraiser like a professional. <laughs> I don't yet, so not quite, but I'll, I'll do what I can. Much of Wikipedia searching will be done. Yeah, yeah, maybe. All right, well, thank you so much. You've been listening to Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Our theme music was provided by Sweet Wave Audio. To find more royalty-free music for your own projects, check out sweetwaveaudio.co.uk. And special thanks to Ariana Ramos for her graphic design savvy helping us with our album art. Visit our website at mostexcellentmovienight.com to listen to other episodes, give us your opinion, and share with us other movies you'd like to have reviewed. You can also contact us through our email address, mostexcellentmovienight.com at gmail.com. We would love to read them on the air. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes, we would be your friends for life. For sure. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night, where movies are most excellent. This has been a Nerd Circle Podcast production.